0: of you
1: who are watching um that have joined us from the do better collective this is being recorded and will be put on um it goes on our podcast the do better podcast and youtube and it will be available on facebook live like it is right now so keep that in mind when you're interacting in this um forum and if you prefer not to be in any of those places you can close your video and leave if you need to (laughs)
2: Megan just told me to behave nicely.
1: That's what happened. All right. So we are live on Facebook. Hello, I am Dr. Megan Miller, and I'm very excited for our sixth difficult discussion tonight. I am working on getting our everything kind of set up. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to just read our introduction to everyone. So welcome to difficult discussions number six on how to have difficult discussions about our field. As I mentioned, I am Dr. Megan Miller and I'm pleased to um, welcome, sorry, my thing's written wrong, but I'm pleased to welcome Jenny, Sarah and Samantha for tonight's discussion. The purpose of difficult discussions is to bring people together with different perspectives, different identities to share their perspectives on a topic that is typically considered taboo to discuss. Seen as controversial and or as well accepted, but maybe should involve more critical analysis and discussion. Specific to tonight's discussion, we want to clarify that we will be talking about how each of us have navigated criticisms of the field of behavior analysis in general terms. We are not here to discuss specific people, agencies, or incidents that we have encountered. We ask those of you who are watching to engage with this discussion in the same way. Any comments made in the chat on Facebook Live um, that reference specific people, agencies, or incidents will be deleted. The format for these events is as follows. None of the panelists will directly respond to anything the other panelists say, except for in Part 3. In Part 1, each person will briefly share any identities they are comfortable sharing and indicate why they wanted to discuss this topic. In part two, each person will provide about a five to 10 minute explanation of their history and perspectives with the topic. In part three, each panelist will briefly reflect on one thing said by one of the panelists to share an aha moment or something they hadn't considered before. And in part four, each panelist will share a closing thought about the topic. This might be an action item or a key point they want listeners to carry with them. The views and opinions expressed in this difficult discussions video are those of each individual person and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any affiliated company or professional organization. Thank you to everyone who is joining us live for this discussion. Please remember that each of the individuals sharing within within this discussion are sharing their own personal stories and perspectives and we expect everyone to be treated with respect, empathy, compassion, and civility. We will do our best to monitor the chat and anyone who is engaging in a manner that is not respectful of the discussion that does not demonstrate a commitment to listening to learn sharing perspectives and or is focused on making people wrong. Will be removed from the chat so those are our expectations for tonight's discussion and we also have members of the do better collective joining us live to take in this discussion as well. If we have time, we will have more of like an open conversation at the end where people can share the reflections from the collective. This is um, a larger panel than typical. Usually I just have like two other people, so we may not have time. <laughs> we'll just kind of see how things go. So the first question to go through with our panel is just our introductions and, why you are here to talk about this topic. Um, And I always do this in kind of a disorganized way, you'd think with the planning that goes into this that I wouldn't, but we didn't talk about an order to go in. So does anyone want to introduce themselves first?
2: You're
1: in charge, I can do what you want. I can. All right, Sarah, go for it. Okay, hi um,
3: everybody. I am Sarah Alford Hart. Um, I am cisgender girl, my pronouns are she, her. Uh, I'm autistic, and I'm also disabled, uh, and I am a board-certified behavior analyst. I've worked in the field for about 10 years, um, and I've been a BCBA for about four years. Um, I just got married four months ago, so I still have trouble remembering my last name, so if you call me Sarah Alford, I'll respond. If you call me Sarah Hart, I'll try to respond, and that's me.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Did you want to share why you wanted to participate tonight? Yes,
3: Um, (laughs) I want to participate because I think that um, I have been having to really work on learning how to have difficult discussions or discussions in general with colleagues, professionals, um, and people I disagree with. And I've also gone through a major um, sort of metamorphosis, I guess, on, on how I've viewed a lot of things and so I'd love to share that with everyone of, of sort of how to be open to changing your mind or to learning new information and um, how to retain that information and use it appropriately.
1: Thank you. Samantha or Gennelly, do you want to go next?
4: Yeah, I can go. I'm Gina Lee. I'm a cisgender neurodivergent mother to a three-year-old neurodivergent son. Uh, This topic's become super important to me over the last several months. There's just so much conflict between the neurodivergent community, autistic specifically, and behavior analysts. So it's my goal to listen, learn, collaborate. So each of us are providing ethical, safe practices for the population that we serve and able to get along with one another as colleagues. Ideally, all behavior analysts will join us in this mission.
1: Thank you, Jenny. Samantha, would you like to go next? Sure. Hi,
2: I'm Sam. Um, I'm a cisgender woman. My pronouns are she, her. Um, I am not neurotypical at all. I am the mother to an eight-year-old. Um, I own an ABA business. I'm a board-certified behavior analyst, and I'm a licensed certified clinical trauma specialist something. Um, and I, if you ask anyone who works for me, it's basically a requirement to have the skill set that is, how do we have conversations that suck? Uh, because I really feel like the humans that we serve can only get the best care if we are able to have those conversations with each other and sort of hang out in that space that is uncomfortable and disagreement and really work it out so that they're getting the best care. None of us know individually what is best. We only know if we take collective experience and work through it. So um, that's kind of why I'm here. I, my goal is always to make the world a like kinder, more collaborative place. Um, and if you know me, you know that there's the pop-up at the mouth side, but my initial interaction is always like, how do we get to a place that is nice to live in and we're nice to each other and we're communicating and collaborating and learning and growing.
1: Thank you, Sam. So I guess I should introduce myself. I didn't do that yet. So (laughs) Um, I'm Megan, I'm a cisgender woman, white neurotypical as far as I know, heterosexual, a mother of a recently turned five-year-old and a behavior analyst. Why this topic for me, Um, whether it is at the bar, you know, back in the good old days when we could go to bars, on stereo or in clubhouse with family and friends in college coursework, or the big elephant in the room on social media, we inevitably will encounter criticisms of behavior analysis and we will need to have difficult discussions about our field. The power of our science and how it can be both life-changing and life-destroying comes up often. In my ethics course at FSU, Dr. Bailey heavily focused on the abuses that occurred in Sunland, Miami, and those occurred in the name of behaviorism. It aligned more with behavior modification, as anyone knows that studied the Sunland, Miami scandal, but um, the sci- you know, it wasn't necessarily about the science of behavior analysis as we know it, but it happened nonetheless, and it shows how this, um, the methods that can be derived from our science can be misused. He instilled in us the importance of ensuring that our science was not misused or abused in this way. I remember walking away from that thinking we can't forget about our past, and even the present could be par- problematic. I will dive in on this more when we get to our next question, um, but I've gone through several iterations over my career on how to navigate these conversations and pull in um, ensuring our science is not misused. I don't typically see this as a topic that is covered in our coursework, just in general, how to collaborate, how to have difficult discussions. Um, And I was just saying, BABA was hosting an amazing event right before this, where that was part of the topic of conversation, how to be a humble behavior analyst. And so hopefully some of you were able to see that presentation or you purchased it to watch the recording, Um, anyway. So I'm hoping that we can provide an example of how people might navigate something differently. And, uh, and meaning like generally Sarah and Samantha and I don't all necessarily agree on how to navigate difficult discussions even, uh, but we can serve as a model for how we can still get along and learn from each other and share from one another's experiences. So that is my introduction. Okay, so question two, um, just moving right into things to make sure we have time. get through everything is what is each person's history with having difficult discussions about our field? What situations have you encountered? And you can touch on things like how have conversations gone that have been difficult. Um, If you want to touch on the current or new ethics code and how those would influence conversations. If you want to talk about any research or books, um, any trainings you've attended that teach how to navigate difficult conversations. And also, of course, if there's any impacts you've experienced, um, you know, from people, from situations, again, we're not going to talk about specific um, examples throughout our lives, but if there's anything that you've just learned from your own, you know, learning history. So again, we didn't prep this part. Does anyone want to go first? I think y'all tried to talk about it and I was like too busy and, and didn't get to give an answer. So sorry about that. I
2: can go first if you want. And yeah, we thought about it and I was like, oh, we all kind of just we're like, we we'll wing it, but I can go okay. first. All right. So let's... I had kind of a weird path to ABA, which I think put me in a very unique position for these conversations, right? So I graduated college and I did what I now call ABA light. I think my boss was a social worker. I have no idea at this point. And... It was like a a brief dive into what on earth is happening. Um, And then I bounced around, I moved and I was a crisis counselor for a domestic violence hotline in Vegas for a long time. Um, Which when you do that kind of work, I mean, we filed all of the restraining orders for all of Clark County, which is Las Vegas. So, I mean, you hear the horror of the horrorness is, right? Um, I also have a very, a trauma history of my own that I share and I share it in order to kind of teach people how much their body language and their tone and their um, communication styles can impact another person, not just sort of in that conversation, but in general. Um, So, you know, for me, like for me, if I'm having a conversation with a man and he's standing up and he's close to me, I can't have that conversation because my parasympathetic system is off. My sympathetic system is like, "Mm -mm, you're in danger. So I, but I also try to approach everything from a, everybody is doing the best they can and everybody wants to do better approach so that I can start those conversations from a place of like, hi, I love you. Can we do this better? Uh, It doesn't always work, but I try. I am a bit of a hothead, like I said. So like, I am not the perfect model for having difficult conversations. I don't want anyone to think that like, I'm perfect at this, like, trust me, I screw it up all the time, but it's that like continuous attempt to like, I'm gonna, okay, I'm gonna try harder this time, I'm gonna get it better this time, and acknowledging that when I screw up, that's actively affecting another person, and that I owe that person the accountability of like, hey, I screwed up, and in that screw up, that affected you, and I'm sorry for that. Um, I'm also a like social psych and a neuroscience junkie. So, my I, like face dived into the chemical makeup of the brain that impacts your human interactions and in your conversations. And I've taken the kind of stopping people and being like, stop, tell me what your heart rate's doing. Can we be mindful? Let's be intentional and really teaching the micro behaviors of what that looks like. Um, I have had a lot of difficult conversations, and I tend to be the one that doesn't back down. Um, I don't really have that skill set that is hey, you should stop engaging, which means I usually end up in like head-to-head wars with people who also don't know how to do that. And that usually ends up being my role. Um, and that also kind of works into, like I'm massively protected of people that I care about and I absolutely have no patience for people who are bullies or people who engage in behavior that is intentionally harmful to others. Um, So I think just being in that role has given me some very uh, interesting perspectives of how people work. So that's kind of like where I came from. I've read everything you could imagine on Difficult Conversations, every book, every podcast, every seminar, every training. I've just like inhaled it because I'm so... Aware, I think at this point of how impactful communication is and how necessary it is that I've sort of taken on for myself and everyone who comes into contact with me, the um, requirement that is be a better human. So
1: that's it. Thank you, Sam. Mm -hmm. Um, Sarah, generally, did you wanna go next or was I supposed to go next? (laughs) I'm fine with going. All right. Go for it, Jenna um, So for me,
4: there's two different topics that, that come to mind. And the first is navigating the criticism concerns within the supervision experience. And the other is facing criticism from the autistic community. So I will advise for our viewers that the first part does have a trigger warning. So I've been in the field for 12 years. I received my training experience at a satellite branch of one of the country's largest ABA centers at that time. I was very green to the field. I came from a creative writing background, so I, I really didn't know uh, a whole lot uh, about the field. So I really leaned on my supervisor for doing what was the, you know just what was appropriate. Uh, there, there were definitely interventions I was instructed to implement that caused a lot of difficult emotions that, that I was trying to process. So for example, we would treat stems with physical hand or mouth presses. We would give ice cold showers if a child had a urinary accident. And when I questioned those procedures, I was written up for subordination. I respected my supervisor so much, but I wasn't able to have any kind of open dialogue to ask the difficult questions. So the tone was set very early in my career to disregard any kind of personal opinion and focus solely on that empirical evidence. I I was taught from the outset, we don't question the science, even if we have concerns of harm. So behavior analysts, we solve problems by identifying the function or the cause of the problem so that function based intervention can be employed. This same approach is useful in the context of our supervisee supervisor relationships per Turner et al 2016. Taking a systematic approach to solving problems that arise in supervision provides a critical model for the supervisees future professional behavior. So I encourage all of our listeners to just take a moment and think about your favorite supervisor or mentor and just ask yourself these questions. Why would you consider that person in a heartbeat if you had a question about critical feedback or a program you were concerned about? What did they do to make such, to be such an effective supervisor? And why would you want to take their advice? The answer to those questions probably aren't solely because they made some amazing treatment plan. It's more likely they showed up and they cared. They probably established an effective bi-directional relationship with you while explaining the why behind the critical feedback or that treatment plan you don't understand. So one way we can change our supervision practice is to begin each session by asking the supervisee how things are going related to your supervisory relationship. So for example, do you feel comfortable with the amount and type of feedback being provided during sessions together? Are there any additional supports I can give you with extra clarity around programs, target behavior or critical feedback you could be encountering? Starting each uh, meeting with this sort of check-in may eventually result in the check-in serving as the SD for the supervisee to discuss developing issues or concerns in a proactive manner. So that's my soapbox for supervision. The second thing that comes up for me is the the critical feedback provided by autistics. So when I first started seeing criticism of ABA and social media, my initial instinct was shut it down. Uh, this because I was trained that we shouldn't question or doubt our science. At the same time, reading the experiences from the autistic community really struck a chord with me due to my own questions regarding early interventions I had personally utilized. It was about a year ago when I joined a, a well-known reform group. I saw a lot of the comments post bashing ABA. My instinct was get defensive, show examples of how that's not my ABA anymore at least. I specifically remember giving an example of making my own son brush his teeth, even though he really struggled with it. And this was presented as an example of why we should follow through even if a child is having meltdowns because we don't want cavities. I actually ended up leaving this group because I could not handle all of the criticism. At the same time, there was still part of me asking if there was truth behind what autistics were sharing due to that learning history, but I still had an obligation to shut it down. Then a few months later, my son was diagnosed with sensory processing disorder. He's on a wait list for an autism evaluation. And I started to realize maybe my own approach with escape extinction on hygiene tasks could be causing harm for my son because there were so many tantrums and he was able to to verbalize that it hurt. So keep in mind, my primary experience has been with nonverbal clients who couldn't vocally tell me how they felt. So then I rejoined the group because I wanted to learn more about the autistic experience. I actually started private messaging with a few of the autistic members. And I was starting to discuss my son's struggles with his sensory processing. And I was given so much insight as to different perspectives of what could be happening. So one autistic suggested I try a specific type of toothbrush that had soft bristles and then change the flavor of the toothpaste because they said mint can burn the tongue. I tried this and it worked after the first try. Another autistic gave suggestions on transitioning from the bath. There was a lot of tantrums around it. They explained how it can feel to a person with sensory issues to go from a warm, cozy bath to a cold room. So I made sure to keep the room warm, snug them up in a big fluffy towel, and guess what? It worked, we had no more tantrums. Neither of these autistics suggested I let my child out of the task. They simply explained things in a way that helped me understand how to better help my son utilizing environmental manipulation. I felt lucky to get to collaborate with people experiencing what my son and many of our clients experience, but can't quite communicate to us. So I wanted to continue this collaboration when moderating a Facebook group and posts from autistic started to get really controversial primarily because they were met with a lot of defensive and argumentative behavior the more behavior analysts argued, the more controversial posts became. I expected the admin to want to shut it down. So I almost had a sense of relief when we could learn to navigate these conversations on the why behind the criticism. So we stopped deleting critical posts and comments. We started asking why many autistics hold their negative viewpoints about ABA so we could learn. And if one truly listens to the critics, you'll find we have the same goal. It's safe and ethical services for these kids. My goal in this collaboration was never to present myself as anti-ABA, but as a clinician willing to listen to the criticism, ask questions and understand to do better. Hours were spent researching this topic and shutting it down versus engaging with curiosity. And we shared in these various professional development groups. For example, Kikiri al in 2007, found how a tricky situation is not to be avoided, but to be actively constructed for facilitating change. The use of different discursive strategies for managing criticism and blame is demonstrated. In 1990, Barron found that an intervention involving the opportunity to express irritation or defensiveness towards the critic actually increases negative reactions to destructive criticism. So with our approach, we began to see various autistics engage with us in a collaborative way. The tone of their posts started to shift. Posts became less combative. And as a whole, many clinicians have reached out. Instead, their own practice and approach with navigating the criticism has changed significantly after participating in these discussions. At this point, there are several groups dedicated to bettering our field. I've been an admin with an autistic BCBA and mindful behavior for several months. Our goal is to teach other behavior analysts safe and ethical practice, such as ACT and trauma-informed care, as this is often lacking in our experience. I recently began to admin a newer group with an autistic critic. The focus is inclusion of autistic collaboration to provide supervision experience. I also plan on presenting with a different autistic critic later this year. So this demonstrates to me that when we take the time to listen, we can work together. I hope to utilize my experience to be an example for clinicians who may question aspects of our science and demonstrate when we listen, ask questions and engage proactively, we can make progress as a field.
1: Thank you, Lee. Sarah, did you wanna go next or do you want me to go? There, I can go. All right, perfect. If I unmute
3: myself, there we go. Um, Okay, so yeah, I wanted to talk about how I started learning how to navigate difficult conversations um, and starting with hearing criticisms of ABA as well. Um, I started hearing those a few years ago on social media, of course, mostly. Um, At the time, I was like a super hardcore ABA loving science worshipping behavior analyst geek. Um, Many of those still apply to me, those adjectives. um, I've removed some of them and changed some of them around and added a few since then, but some of them still do apply, not all of them. Um, Like probably everybody uh, who hears these criticisms for the first time, like what Jenna Lee said, um, I I knew what I had been trained to think and say to like rebut them and refute them. Um, You know, ABA is everywhere. Uh, ABA is paychecks and traffic lights. Um, we don't hurt children, we help them communicate and fit into society and become independent. Uh, you just don't know what ABA actually is. We don't do it like that anymore, all the standard things that we hear. <laughs> um, and I did. I said all of those things. I gave all of these ABA critics uh, my remarks, all of my prepared remarks, um, you know, all these standard things. And and then they countered them, like all of all of the things I said, they countered them. And in, in, in ways that made sense, um, kind of made my brain go a little crazy because it was like, oh, cognitive dissonance there. Um, but what really worked for me was I started paying attention and hearing the feelings behind their words that like the pain that was coming through their words behind, um, behind the actual words they were saying. Um, and so then it started becoming more of a discussion at that point. I realized I could, converse more um, I went from being defensive to really listening um, to seeing what they were seeing and how they were seeing it differently than how I had I mean not all of it not all at once um, little, little pieces at a time little little chinks in the armor going away um, but then I started seeing like other ABA professionals and other groups saying the same things again right and, like the things that I'd been saying and it was like oh now that doesn't feel right now that's not, that doesn't feel the same way it used to instead of making me, yeah, ABA is great. It was like, "Mm, maybe not. Um, So I started asking more questions, questioning why we do what we do and what we do. And uh, there was this entire other side to our field. um, The the thing I'd been so excited about, I I joined our field to help people. And when I found out that the help was hurting people, I knew I, I couldn't keep going down that. I had to stop it and I had to do something big about it. Um, so I started actively um, working to help fix the field. I try really hard. Um, for me, it's, it's I have a lot of anxiety talking to people and I have a lot of anxiety about conflict. So it was a, a big thing for me to start pushing back against people. But I felt so strongly about what I was saying that that's why Um, I try to do that. I've I've tried really hard to get people to listen to the criticisms of our field, um, to understand what's broken, what we need to do, um, show people the ways where the field isn't safe for vulnerable people right now. Um, Because I I believe in the good of people, kind of like Samantha said, you know, people do well when they can. And I believe that most of us in this field want to help people, not hurt people. Um, So when those people, when they say, please stop, you're hurting us, I can't just look away or delete them or quote Skinner at them or demand that they like operationally define hurt and provide data on how many and when and, and all this stuff, you know, cause these are people, they're, they're talking about real things. Um, so for me, what I've learned how to use these um, or how to have these difficult conversations with our colleagues um, and, and what, how to respond um, when we hear criticisms and start feeling that defensiveness. So here's some non-examples first, um, but we what we shouldn't do. <laughs> um, we shouldn't question someone's credentials just because they're disagreeing with us. Um, we shouldn't tell other ABA professionals that they don't belong in ABA groups because they've criticized the field, trying to make it better. Um, we shouldn't go after people's diagnoses or neurotypes or imply that people are faking or lying. They, come on guys, um, we shouldn't automatically assume that the person with the most you know, professional tone or words is the one who's right. Um, Cause you know, people can speak very professionally while saying some very nasty things. It's not always who has the best or the calmest tone. Um, and then that has several parts to it. You know, emotions run high when people are saying things that really hurt. And the person that doesn't get emotional about these injustices, it, are, is not always the person who's right about them, if that makes sense. Um, and this, you know, includes people who use their professional academic language to look down on others who don't or don't understand it or don't use particular societal norms. Um, some of us speak very plainly and emotionally. We, we say what we say. Uh, I personally am sometimes able to sort of mask and use all the sugar-coated professional words and remain polite for the most part. Um, but I'll let people know that, that takes a lot of effort and focus to remember how I'm supposed to be speaking in order to be heard and, and listened to. And I can only stain, sustain that up to a certain point. But hearing people disregard the autonomy and personhood of other human beings makes my spoon levels drop really quick. And I can't always keep masking when I have those kinds of feelings when I hear those things. Um, So please keep that in mind when you see discussions happening in the different groups. Um, People getting emotional, it doesn't mean that they're wrong or unreasonable. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that they have run out of things to say and are just yelling. It might mean that this is the hundredth time today that they've had to defend somebody's human rights and they're just getting really tired. Um, So those are the non-examples and then my um, examples Really quick are, um, I always try to keep in mind my ultimate goal and mission when I'm having these conversations, I actually have it right here on my monitor at all times so I don't forget. Uh, It says make the ABA field safe. Um, So when I start engaging in conversations, I just look at that while I'm typing and say, you know what, if whatever I'm saying doesn't fall within that, I need to stop. Um, When a colleague's criticizing the field, questioning something, noticing, um, just Listen to it instead of shutting it down and then reflect on it. And then notice kind of what that brings up for you. the defensiveness, the anger, um, a desperate like need to correct. need to correct these if, if there's an error or an inaccuracy, I need, I need to correct it because um, I, I think a lot of us have those feelings. I think we're kind of primed to respond that way. So sort of so figure out why, ask some questions. Um, you know, I'm not saying believe and support every single thing you hear, like that, that's not what I'm saying. Um, I, I'm saying like, don't scream and rage against people who believe differently than you. You know, figure out why they believe differently, why they're saying these things. And then, you know, give, give yourself permission to be open-minded and consider those views Um, that are contradictory to your current ones. You know, consider the fact that you could be wrong. Right, none of us know everything. You know, we're gonna be wrong sometimes. (laughs) We're all infallible. Um, But overall, I'd say the best way to have a difficult conversation, um, and especially in the case of talking about historically historically marginalized communities, um, such as the autistic and disabled community, um, is just listen. And I know a lot of people say like, what is listen? It means actually listen while they're talking instead of preparing your rebuttal in in your head while they're talking, when you're already creating the response for it. You know, just actually listen, be present in the moment, hear them, hear the feelings behind what they're saying, make space for your uncomfortable feelings that come up and their feelings and examine those and then reflect on them and be open Um, and treat the person like you're talking to as uh, like a fellow human being, because they are, and just don't be a dick. That that's basically sums it up.
1: Sarah, Sarah's critical (laughs) phrase from another difficult discussion we did a few months (laughs) ago. (laughs) All right. I'm going to go ahead and share my answer to the question. And for any of you who ever watch me do anything, you'll know this is probably not going to be a short answer. (laughs) So I could spend the whole hour and more talking about this and giving general examples from my own life. I'm highlighting a few that I haven't really talked about before or as much to hopefully delineate a pattern that worked and a pattern that didn't work and how my behavior has been shaped in the way it has when it comes to having difficult conversations. So the first thing that came up for me when I was thinking about this, like when did I first encounter um, criticisms of our field? And honestly, the very first one I can remember is like being at the bar in Panama City. It was like a, um, it was, like a smoke filled, like bar that um, hole in the wall type place where people were playing pool and just like, you know, hanging out. And some dude wanted to talk to me about free will. (laughs) And I was like, oh, you will learn today how that does not exist. And I'm going to explain to you what determinism is. And not surprisingly, that went nowhere. Um, I was friends with the person and we had numerous conversations about it. And I was never able to um, force him to believe in determinism, regardless of how many examples I came up with. And the really funny thing is I had a similar conversation. I think, um, I can't remember if Claire was there or not, but it was at a bar in Dubai um, with some people there. It came up again. And somehow I went down that same track. But so I will tell you from the non-example standpoint, usually not probably going to get very far if you're trying to convince people who are not behavior analysts um, and you're drinking. Uh, the second one, though, that came up for me, again, when I sort of reflected back on my history and like when I encountered criticisms of the field, when I lived in Panama City, I met William Keeley, and I know we said we weren't going to share specific examples, but I did obtain permission from him to share the story. So um, he is autistic and told me when we, he met me for the first time that he didn't like behavior analysis. And I could tell just from that initial interaction that he just wasn't a big fan of me hearing that I was a behavior analyst. I did a quick assessment and couldn't determine, um, I just, you know, there was nothing for me there to like be defensive. I saw the desperation in his eyes and and the negativity that he had towards the field. And it was like, what would it accomplish if I try to be defensive right now and um, explain to him how amazing behavior analysis is. Instead, I decided in that moment to listen to his concerns and make sure I was not practicing or training people to practice in ways that would be harmful to him or other autistics. I also valued his perspective and invited him to speak to the students at FSU that I was supervising. Um, And I reached out to William before this talk, and this is his recollection of our encounter. He said, quote, I came from a time and place where electric shocks were used. When, um, When we met, you were still almost a kid. I looked at myself and kind of felt bad that I had all this animosity towards this poor young woman. And then you invited me to come speak. I was flabbergasted. You also asked me questions about how I saw things and not from a checkoff list. I have tried for years to find people who are willing to see things from an autistic point of view. You were the very first. I don't share this example to toot my own horn. I share it to show how easy it was when I met someone in person to listen, be curious and learn from him. A lot of the criticisms of our field seem to come up online in blogs and posts and comments. And I've learned this creates an entirely different dynamic. Um, for, so the third thing that came up for me when I was thinking about this, I had various interactions online early in my career. I spent hours online. Um, I don't know where I found the time, but I did, trying to explain to people what good ABA looks like. Um, even though I had that encounter with William before that, I still, for whatever reason, once it became an online situation and I didn't actually know the people that I was engaging with, it just all went out the window. It was like defensive, defensive, defensive. Um, I never stopped to try and see what I could learn from those interactions or um, you know what, what I could do to improve um, based on those interactions. And it actually got to the point for a while with the online interactions that I learned, you know, it was never going to go anywhere. I would defend our practices and try to explain that I was different. And I would just get like, you know, argumentative, um, just lots and lots of, uh, more criticisms back. So I eventually when I became even more busy, I was like, I just don't, I don't have time for this. I'm not even, I'm not even going to engage, which, um, Sarah and I both talked about in the difficult discussions on the cards against humanity that we did as episode one in September. So if you haven't seen that, you can learn more about like our, um, tr- like what happened in that situation. Um, So then just a couple of more things that came up for me when I was thinking, I went a lot on my history here just to kind of show. So we have an example of not being defensive, lots of examples of being defensive and more examples of being defensive. So when I was at the doc program at Ohio state, we took several courses where behaviorism was brought up as a negative because we were in the general education department. So we took classes for behavior analysis, but we also took classes that were outside of, you know, our little department bubble. Um, And I was so focused on being defensive, I missed opportunities to learn something new and figure out how to synthesize this expertise in these other areas and grow. Uh, The few times we tried to defend behaviorism in class, like if there was an opportunity to have an open discussion, the BCBAs in the class would all try to like chime in and and dispel myths right then and there. And it went nowhere because we were surrounded by people who had partially different values, but also different learning histories and had already been indoctrinated on different things. And instead of trying to like connect with them and see where they were coming from and what we could learn, we went straight in for the, you know, this is why you're wrong. And this is, you know, what's really the truth. And and they just shut down and didn't listen to us. So the last um, two things for me, I've reflected a lot over this past year because of new opportunities relating to these discussions, but also, just progress made in general and attempting to understand different perspectives in a variety of contexts. COVID gave us all a lot of time to be home. And like, even though we're not physically seeing people in person, we're all having a lot more online interactions and um, virtual, like telehealthy, you know, virtual type remote interactions. And I came to the realization that most of the training or modeling I received in my early years in the field was to immediately defend ABA and to do so in a way that was very arrogant and not at all humble. Thankfully, I also received training and a model that within the field, it was good to question our practices and make sure we were ethical and humane. It was an accumulation of experiences like the sample I've provided above that have influenced and shaped how I navigate these conversations today. And reflecting on what I knew and what I didn't know about how to navigate difficult conversations, I sought out a variety of resources, but I'm just going to highlight these two um, information on how to have difficult conversations. So research and courses, uh, out of all the different things I consumed, the compassionate listening course was the most appealing to me. And I'll put the link in the chat and models outside of behavior analysis that are successfully bringing together people with differing perspectives and opinions and moving forward in the service of benefiting marginalized groups and humanity at large. Not a single one of those models, by the way, includes becoming defensive, trying to shut people down, trying to cancel them or delete them. It all incorporates the the importance of being heard and seen. So what am I doing now? Um, largely, I'm refraining from text-based discussions about our field. You'll see videos like this on ongoing uh, continuing education and different activities with inside the Do Better Collective. But um, even though I had encountered like I said, early on in my career, I tried the text-based route, then I just sort of shut down completely. I've, I've still haven't yet seen value in trying to engage with people in a text-based format around difficult discussions. And I never found anything in my research that um, indicated that would be beneficial either. I'm seeking out platforms that comprise a variety of perspectives and people so I can continue to grow and learn and see how this information fits in with the science of behavior analysis. I do my best to stay humble and curious and just be open to learning I'm not sure where in our field it came from that we would scoff and shut things down that don't fit in with our science. It goes against all of the research, even in our own field on developing relationships and shifting behavior. And in the, the Baba presentation with Nasia that just happened before this, she referenced um, an article by Neuringer from 1991 called Humble Behaviorism. And he highlights that in there, like the importance of being humble and curious. Um, When engaging on these other platforms like Stereo and Clubhouse, inevitably, people will ask me to explain ABA. And rather than pretend like criticisms of our field don't exist, I, um, I, I address them head on. I don't know where these people are coming from that ask me about it, but if you do a quick Google search for ABA therapy, you'll see that a mixture comes up. So I'm just just sort of assuming that they might have done, like when they heard I was a behavior analyst, they might've done a Google search and now they're like, whoa, tell me more about this thing you do. Um, So I address that and I explain, it is currently a controversial field and we are working on addressing the criticisms. The alternative would be to not say that um, and have them consume the information on their own and who knows what conclusions might be drawn. If I show that I'm open to discussing the criticisms and addressing them, it is more likely I will make a connection with those who don't know what we do and have the opportunity to teach, you know, from what I know and as well as learn from them. Then I've also been creating continuing education events around these topics. We have two on the collective right now, the Do Better Collective Community Expectations and Guidelines, and then we just put out the Compassionate and Curious Behavior Analysts. And then lastly as part of developing these i've consumed a lot of literature on these topics and worked on figuring out how to train others in our field so we can do better and productively navigating these conversations in a way that advances our field um, instead of creating more enemies shutting people out or looking unrelatable so that's kind of my my very beginnings to like where i am Too many years later i'm not going to admit how old i am right now (laughs) i did not monitor the facebook chat at all while i was talking so i'll go back and check that out but um all right so now that we've each shared um and look we're already almost at nine o'clock i'm just getting through question two so i told you um that we would probably go a little long on this one all right so question three is somewhat usually a fast one but what is something that was said by one of the panelists just now that you are reflecting on. So the the point here is to really do things, um, focus on like things that you hadn't considered before. If there were any aha moments for you, um, we're not going to try to like argue with each other or anything like that. So um, mm-hmm. Samantha, Sarah, or Jenny, do one of you want to go first? I, I have a couple if if that's sure. fine, that I thought were interesting because
2: um, Sarah has been super instrumental in, sort of my learning process in this whole thing I feel like every time we talk I like learn a new thing and I'm like wait what um and talking about masking right if you know me my second best skill is writing emails that are very professionally going to tell you where to stick it like that that is my only marketable skill realistically but if you have a conversation with me in person you get the unedited version that is not as able to like kind of collectively hold myself together and be like, hi, would you like to discuss the method of, I'm like, no, you're a human, I'm a human, we're going to converse like humans, Um, and I never really thought of it as masking, but like it makes total sense, right? It's like I can do it in typing because you don't, I don't have all this to process and worry about, Um, and that's kind of related to the second thing. Generally, you mentioned your baby human with like the sensory needs. So I have wicked sensory needs. I can't eat applesauce. I can't touch newspaper. I can't touch Kleenexes, like not a thing. So for me, like those kind of manipulations are just my norm because if you give me newspaper, I'm like, "Ah, I wanna crawl out of my skin. And because I have executive functioning deficits, I never really thought through like how much that needs to be taught, right? every time I say to a person, please don't make me touch that newspaper, they look at me like I'm bonkers. And I'm like, no, I hate it. And it makes my whole body feel like it's on fire. I don't want that. Um, and you, I think I forget that everyone's experience is so different that I have, we have to communicate those things and teach them. And like, well, duh, of course, you're a behavior analyst, but also not duh, because obviously. Um, so those were the ones that kind of like stuck out to me, I think, and Megan, you mentioned teaching. I actually started teaching because I could not handle the clinicians that were coming out of the programs. And they just, I had someone say to me once, oh, well, no, you can't love the kids you work with. And I was like, these are baby humans. If they need a hug, I'm gonna hug them. You know what else we're gonna do? They're sad, we're gonna hug them. We're gonna read books. They're humans. I don't, and I was just like, nope, I'm all done. Like we are gonna start being humans first and behavior analysts second because that's how the world needs to be. Um, And it very much to me, finding all of you was like a coming home, like with Eric, who's sitting over here. It was very much like, you're not on an island by yourself and there are other behavior analysts who like recognize the importance of this and we can do something to help, which was
1: beautiful. So anyways. That's what I had. Thank you, Samantha. Thank you. Sarah, Jenilee, did you want to share a reflection next?
3: Yeah, I can go next. Um, I was thinking about Jenilee's um, points about supervision and how um, I, you know, I admin several groups and I have a lot of RBTs coming to me saying, "How do I talk to my supervisors about the stuff that I'm learning?" You're saying, you know this stuff is ableist, and it's all in the treatment plans, and I'm being directed and told to do these things. Um, and I think that's that's something that, as supervisors, I, I don't supervise, but as our field, learning, teaching, we need to be very open, exactly what Ginnelly said, like, have this relationship with your RBTs, not, you know, complaining about them, or it, it just, I don't know. Sometimes it, these dynamics they 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 can be very hurtful to everybody in the situation. And so I think taking care of the RBTs, um, making sure that they are able to speak up, um, and then on the flip side to the RBTs, if your supervisor is shutting you down and not listening and being very out of it, you know, send them links to our group first, see, see if, you know, any of our groups, see if they're open to learning. Um, And if not, you might need to find a different job where you can make a difference, um, you know, or, you know, a different job, a different company, wherever you are. So don't feel like you're stuck at the one company that is not doing good things. So,
4: I guess I'll go next. As a side note to piggyback off of that, uh, there is a new Facebook group that there's like thousands now. So you may not have found it yet. I think we just launched last week, but it's Reform-Minded Supervision. And uh, the group of admin and moderators were actually working now on a curriculum for supervision that's going to be inclusive of uh, for from autistics, uh, how to collaborate with autistics. So definitely be on the, the lookout for that. Join the group if you want to know more but I, I guess something that that stood out for me and it was a combo of sam and sarah two different things that you all said that that really linked well together but sam was talking about her own personal experience of of having trauma so she's able to see that either, better and in, in other people and, and she's been through that kind of situation that that she's had that before um i also have i'm a I have PTSD as well, I have some of my own trauma. So, so I feel like maybe I'm able to empathize a little bit more on that. But Sarah had said when she really started to see the pain and the hurt. And I think a huge shift for me was when I watched the Cardgate video and just the, the visceral raw emotion of one of the autistic members sharing how painful that was how much it hurt. From there, it's like, how do you even argue against this now? Clearly things we're doing are harmful and, and it needs to change. And it, it, it I think it's interesting. It, it was an autistic member actually, um, they posted a, a poll in several of the groups. And they were interested in the groups where, where behavior analysts were more likely to be reform-minded or to listen to the autistic community. Were they neurotypical or were they neurodivergent? And overwhelmingly, behavior analysts willing uh, to not even neurodivergent, I think it was marginalized in any way. And it's just overwhelming of the behavior analysts willing to listen and engage and support. They're marginalized in some way themselves. So so I, I, I guess I'm just really curious, how do we take that and then move forward with this disconnect that, that we have in the field? And I don't quite have an answer for it, but talking it out civilly. Uh, and I think the last thing that, that I just kind of want to, to leave that with too is that the different Facebook groups that you're in, if, if you think that that's where you should get your information for best practice, that's a you problem you should not be getting best practices from Facebook. And I'm seeing all these posts of people just appalled that, oh my goodness, somebody posted about this intervention and this group allowed this to happen. That doesn't mean you have to go and implement it yourself. That doesn't mean anyone's endorsing it. It's learning both sides of it in order to be better informed, better educated. So you can navigate it when you when you see it in the field um, and people shouldn't be getting crucified for, for hosting those discussions. Yes, yes, hire autistic consultants
3: to, to, to actually work with your clients or to actually talk with you about how to work with your clients.
1: Thanks, generally, thanks, Sarah. Um, my reflection, is I'll, I'll be short so that we have time for our last question. Um, I, there's tons, but the one that I wanted to highlight because I think it is really important, Samantha, when you were sharing about how like you're kind of that person that like doesn't back down and like says the the hard things or whatever. That's definitely um, maybe not. I don't think we use the same verbiage. <laughs> but like when I was in high school, my nickname was Captain B. Like I'm known as the bitch. Like that's who I am. Sarah worked for me. I mean, I wasn't a bitch in like a you know um, a typical sense, but like I I said the things that needed to be said and I did the things that needed to be done. Um, and though, what it also brought up for me is you know, that importance of it sounds like you've done a lot of work on learning how to soften the edges or like do the things <laughs> in the alternative route. Like, you can be that person when it's necessary, but that doesn't mean you're always that person, and you have to learn, you have to develop those skill sets. That's why I've sought out. I was either completely silent and did nothing. Um, and then I sought out like additional training and um, literature to help broaden my skill set around that because I could, the experience I had was that like saying the things that I felt needed to be said and the way I was saying them wasn't getting me anywhere. So I needed to figure out a different way. So if you find yourself um, listening to this conversation and you're like, "Yes, I'm the badass who like says the things that need to be said," I would reflect on, um, you know, there are going to be moments where like that could happen. But like more broadly speaking, wh- where are your skill sets around how to navigate difficult conversations? What work have you done? Um, like Samantha mentioned, all the different like books and things that she's read. Um, and, and how do you create that broader repertoire to have, um, more productive? Cause sometimes it can feel really good to just say the things that need to be said and be like, yes, I got that out of my yeah. system. <laughs> it doesn't mean you're accomplishing anything. So
2: I think that's important, right? The finesse side of me is not the natural side that is taught you. It, the real me is a sledgehammer, like just does not like wrecking ball, But you're right. It doesn't get you anywhere. And it's, you have to learn to read the people and the situations and have your end goal in sight so that you can finesse it. It's like, we have to get to an end goal. And that end goal has got me feeling good because I made you cry. Right. Granted, there are times when I feel very excited that the outcome was like, someone was like, oh, they heard the message. All right. But for the most part, it's like, I want you to get somewhere. I want this to be productive. I want us to have a conversation and I'm not going to get that way if I'm just acting all loud, <laughs>
1: like how I normally am. <laughs> I Thanks. All right. So we have our last question and I know, um, we're at the hour. Uh, are each of you able to stay on for a few more minutes to, to do the last question. Okay. So the yeah. last question is just to share any action items that you have for those who might be watching this video. So what, what would you like people to take away from this discussion and start doing to, to do better um, in navigating difficult conversations? Did anyone want to go first?
3: Yeah, I can go. Okay. Um, I would say that the action items that I try to... Um, I try to do and I try to tell everyone else to do or, or show them um, is, first of all, as I said in my sticky note, <laughs> when you start engaging in these things, know your mission. It doesn't have to be the same mission as mine. Whatever it is, whatever you, your values are, keep that in mind every, thing to every time you say something. And if you realize, no, I'm getting off that. I'm protecting my name or I'm getting defensive or any anything little you know tangent that gets away from your mission just stop and pull it back and say hey is this furthering my goal is this furthering my mission or is this getting sidetracked and and it's more my stuff now um and that's kind of how i i try to navigate that i would also just reiterate um that hiring uh people who um experience autism who experience the world um through autistic eyes hiring Um, just consulting with people, talking to people um, and talking to people outside the field, other fields, speech therapists, OTs, uh, physical therapists, music therapists, dolphin therapy, I don't know, like just talk to other people who talk to humans um, because our field is a little bit isolated um, and insulated and um, we just sort of need to get out of those borders and if that's not like oh, okay, we're throwing evidence out the window. It's, it's, it's just talking to people like, and, and, and hearing other opinions and thoughts. And I think that's um, an action item that I would have is, is listen to people that you disagree with and see if you are able to remain civil and talk to them like humans. And, and that's, that's sort of my action item. Thing.
2: I think to piggyback on that, To do any of this, you have to turn the lens to yourself. I have to stop looking at other people and saying, but they're the problem. They're not doing this or they're not pushing this. And it realistically, it's how comfortable am I at being uncomfortable and how familiar am I with my values and my own deficits and how can I navigate those successfully? Because you can't have difficult conversations if you're so far into sort of like imposter syndrome. And if you're unsure and you don't know what your goals in life are, you can't do this. You don't have the bandwidth or the skill set. So I think everyone's first step has to be what are my values? What am I living to? And why is it important? And what is my responsibility in the interactions I have with the world? And then we take it from there and we figure out how we make it all go.
4: <laughs> um, I guess mine, I, I had mentioned a couple of action items in part two. But it, it, I feel like it really does start with that supervision experience and setting the tone right out of the gate for, for our clinician. So if you are currently a supervisor, start to consider how to prep others to have these difficult conversations, how to navigate them. If, if you, I see a lot of people, they're like, oh, I'm a lurker in the group. I don't really know what to say. I don't know how I feel on it. And then I see others that come in, they're swinging on, on wanting to, to argue back and forth. So I would encourage others to just take some time and do a little bit of research. You can go to Google Scholar and type in uh, best ways to handle criticism. And, and you'll find all kinds of research and, and large and wide, it's going to point to listening and engaging from that place of curiosity. I had cited a few different sources when I was talking, I can link those up as well. But just getting familiar with how do we have these discussions that it could You feel like you're insulted from it because I got in this field because I love these kids because I want to help so much I couldn't be a monster I couldn't be abusive you're not talking about me and it's just shouting it down shouting it down. But how can we actually take these things that we're hearing from the critics and be able to process that and just pause a little bit and and think about why they're saying the things that they're saying and maybe learn to, instead of coming back with all of these citations and all this evidence and all of this data, just ask, Can you tell me more about your experience? Can you tell me more about why you feel this way? And then just take time to let that process. You don't have to fire away on the internet. You can take little breaks and pause in between and process and consider to to truly be compassionate. And, and lastly, you know, I would encourage a lot of people that, that were involved in a recent PSA video that came out, you look at their background and you see people that, that are more likely to listen, a lot of them do have experience with ACT, so acceptance and commitment therapy. So Sam had mentioned of what's true to our values. So if you're not familiar with ACT, I would really encourage you to start Uh, diving in. I love the happiness trap. That's a fantastic book. Join mindful behavior, not to highlight myself here, but we do a lot of free CEs there. And and that might get you on the right path. If you're just feeling stuck or at a loss for the field, or, or just talk to any of us, just reach out if you're confused and you want advice on how to
1: navigate further. My computer is being so slow. I'm trying to switch back and forth from the Facebook live to here. And it's like slow, it's a brand new computer. All right, so um, I'll answer the question. And um, if anyone needs to leave, feel free to do so. Cause my answer is kind of long. All right, so uh, my action items, I have four of them. One, learn about naive realism. It's, we didn't bring it up at all in this discussion. It's outside of behavior analysis. It falls more under like positive psychology and sociology. But if you look it up and learn more about it, it should give some ideas about why what is happening in society at large, not even just navigating difficult conversations about our field, but just like divisive topics that are occurring. The basic premise is that our our own perception, so we see our own perception as unbiased and objective reality. Other rational people will agree with us. And anyone who has a differing view is clearly uninformed, irrational, or biased. And that's from work done by Ross and Ward in 1995. I discussed this more in the compassionate and curious behavior analyst webinar, but I think understanding that phenomenon that occurs and has been studied in society can give a better, motivation for a lot of people to check themselves like whoa wait (laughs) am I just engaging in naive realism right now am I just like looking at my own reality as like the true factual reality and not flipping it and taking perspective and trying to understand the other person, Um, because I think that's what a lot of us just do, um, whether it was ingrained in us or not, um, that it's just a natural thing that occurs. The second thing I would recommend is the same amount of questioning that might come up for people when seeing critiques of behavior analysis. And I know because I've been there and I know how many questions I came up with when I saw people criticizing um, our field, apply that to our own field and why we were taught to engage with people the way we were taught to engage with them, the the shut it down, the delete and cancel. Why, Why were we taught that that's the best way to engage with critics? Where has that taken us? Besides maybe making ourselves feel good and boosting our own ego, what has that accomplished? Um, And we just tend to go off our own learning history and what was modeled for us without really questioning why we're doing what we're doing and engaging in that way. Reflect on how often being defensive, combative, attempting to be right with people, whether it's about behavior analysis or anything else, um, has gone well for you. Like when has that ever shifted anyone and made any progress forward? I'm going to guess never, um, try to create connection and know your context. Most platforms where we have the opportunity to disseminate information about our science right now, they're not research journals. They're not college classes. They're not training opportunities. They are with people outside of our field who likely value different things. Before trying to to convince them that ABA is the best thing since sliced bread, learn about them and what they value and what their concerns are. Reflect on that information and how you can use it to inform your practice and wait for the proper moment to share what you know and how it might be useful. Be humble and see humans. These interactions for a lot of people, especially online, seem to just be thought exercises. And while they may be thought exercises for some people, they're traumatic for many others. It takes a lot of effort on all sides to engage in conversations like this. And when we lose sight of the fact that the folks who we are engaging with are real humans who are truly affected by what we say and do, we cause the most harm. I am beyond fortunate to have had that interaction with William in person instead of online because it may have gone in a completely different direction And I may have missed out on a learning um, opportunity and learning all that I learned from him, developing that lifelong friendship with an amazing person and connecting with him to show other sides of our science. Every interaction is a gift. It is an opportunity to create a better image for our field or it could be an opportunity to further destroy our reputations. Science is valuable. Having humble, curious, compassionate and empathetic conversations With folks who criticize our work doesn't mean you will go to to work the next day and throw science out the window. It means you will go to work the next day with a new perspective on how to humanely apply this science. Just because this science can be used to change something doesn't mean it should. Just because this science can be used um, to effectively train certain, train out certain response patterns that are against the norm and replace them with normal response patterns, doesn't mean we should. Reflect on if you're placing the value of science at all costs above everything else and why that would happen. Errors and harm occur in the name of science and medicine all the time. We talked about that on our last difficult discussions, number five with Adrian Bradley and Stephanie Bolden. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, please do. We can value science and acknowledge the harms and risks involved. When people make suggestions that are outside of what we would typically value or do as behaviorists, Do the same thing you would do to understand why your learner is responding the way they are and work in that that realm, in that place of curiosity. Why are these things being said? What can I learn from this? Where do we go from here? Recognize the human first, learn about them, know them, value them, then pull in the science. Those are my action items. All right, so it is officially 9-11. <laughs> so we're just going to keep going over on our difficult discussions, but I hope this was helpful for everyone. I can hang out for a few minutes if anyone from the collective has any reflections they would like to share. I will remind you, if you're going to share a reflection, it should fit with our initial agreements for this um, discussion. So no identification of any specific incidents and being um, civil and uh respectful of the the situation shared so like this would be a time if you're feeling defensive and like you want to question any of us like not to do that put that on pause, it should be more about a reflection on your own like this is what I'm learning. (laughs) So does anybody have anything they want to share before we close out. Uh, Abigail. Hey, um, let me put my
0: down my hand on first. So I Thank you all so much for sharing your perspectives and um, action items and guidance for people. It was really, this was very thought provoking. Um, One of the things that came up for me that I just wanted to put out into the universe here is when I did did my original training, it was in special education with um, like I did the BCBA courses. And in that program, we learned a lot about the history of special education and, main, um, like, the um, mainstream movement and the deinstitutionalization movement, and then you know, ABA like was in there. And I, I just think it would be interesting to look at the history more deeply. And I, I'm, I feel like there has to be some people who have already done some of that work. But looking at like the number of BCBAs and how many people with autism are you know are now in school and how many were, are being treated and just like looking at the trajectory over time because there's been so much dilution in our field with training training programs like the quality of training programs um over time and but it's still it's such a short period of time like just looking at you know from the 1980s to 2020 that's 40 years and so like the first 20 years of that was like the time people were, you know, receiving treatment, um, you know, ABA-based treatment, and now those people are adults and that are reflecting back upon, you know, go, you know uh, learning about acceptance and commitment therapy, reflecting upon their own, you know, history of trauma, and then now being able to talk about that. Like, I'm, I'm 40 right now, right? I was born in 81. And like, there was a lot of trauma in my life that I can reflect back on now and understand kind of like how and why it might've happened, not to justify it, but there's like everything, everything happens in context. So I just thought that was, that just, this conversation brought up a lot of that for me that we need to, or I need to reflect more upon like the timeline and the history of our field and kind of where we're at now and where, you know, how we can do better to change our trajectory. So, thanks
5: for
2: that. That trauma-informed piece is so vital and, The thing that comes up too, though, is that as we talk more about trauma, we all start to process our own trauma more. Um, I have a lot of conversations with my mom who's very uncomfortable about how open I am about my trauma and my healing journey, because that's not what we do. We are taught not to talk about the human pieces of ourselves and of that, and we're definitely not taught in a clinical setting to let our humanness affect our interactions with humans. And... I think that's key. Like, what have we been doing? What has it caused? Why are we here? How are we, how do we get here? How do we do better? And how do we help each other in this sort of collective journey that is adding this piece to our science that is you're a human and I love you before you're a human and you're, eh, I'm gonna see what I can do. So, yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I was going to say just to tag on to, um, you were saying, you know, we have to be trauma informed. And I think some people might think, well, you know, not if my client has not experienced trauma. Um, Most of us work with autistic people, autistic children, young adults Um, in the autistic community. uh, It's we, we talk about nobody really knows what autism looks like without trauma, because right now the world is set up in a way that all autistic people experience trauma. And so, yes, all of our clients have trauma, continue to experience trauma just from the way the world works right now. Um, so I think we really need to keep that in mind that it's not just kids who happen to have had something go wrong with them. If you're autistic, you, you're tra- you've had trauma. And I mean, honestly, most people in the world have. So, but yeah, that, that's, we don't know what autism looks like without trauma responses.
1: Thank you. Um, Those are all excellent points. Abby, when you were talking, what it brought up for me is, and I think we've even discussed this a little bit amongst our panel when we were planning this. (laughs) When we look at the history of the field, especially back in the 60s and the 70s, and you look at the, the research articles that were published then and the focus on humanity, and like being more humane and how behavior analysis is like that next iteration and like more effective and humane treatment and you read like van houten at all in 1987 like you know the things were being done to take what was currently happening to folks that were in various institutions and improve upon that and give them more of a humane li- li- lived experience and value their individuality and then somewhere something has shifted Um, And I I don't, there's so many variables, I don't think we could pinpoint them all, but I know from my own personal experience that when I was trained, at least working in autism, I was trained to break the child. I know I was trained that. I was literally told it's like breaking a horse, right? About two-year-olds. Like, no, that is not okay. Okay. So somewhere with Van Hooten in 1987 to me being trained in the 2000s, something shifted and, and we, we look at data points and we look at things we can break and then rebuild. And that is not how you look at the human experience. So, um, I did a lot of history studying for like creating the different trainings I've done and like, you know, reading back, I, even the articles from like the mid, um, like just recently, 2015, 2017, that have been done on like how behavior analysts don't have great reputations on collaborating and how we're not trained on skills and empathy and compassion. And, um, the one that, uh, Nasia mentioned earlier in the Baba training, uh, from the nineties. So like the stuff is there, people have been talking about it. Um, it's just, it just seems to be, you know, not really being moved forward on. And, um, Dr. Alai, from UNT talks about this quite a bit with her work and some of her, her more recent students are talking about you know, behavior analysis and love and those types of things. So it's not that like there aren't people out there working on this, it's just overshadowed by a lot of the other things. Um, or even if there's just one out of the 50,000 behavior analysts that almost right throughout the world, if there's just one that's still operating from a place of what we're talking about today That's one too many, right? And like that would create the, still these huge echo chambers of people criticizing our field. So even if people like hear what we're talking about today and they're like, oh, well, that's just like, and I'm not saying you said this Abby, but if there are people listening who are like, oh, well, that's just a few. There's only a few people who still practice like that. First of all, no, that's not true. I've traveled the world. I've seen the practices that is not true. And second of all, even if it were, that's still too much. Like that's not okay. Um, sorry, Julie, you were going to say something?
5: Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think that I have um, noticed within the field that I personally find baffling um, um, is how people are in the field are looking at the development of a child um, and what goals that they should have. Now, I think that a lot of this problem is not just hinged on behavioral analysis, but it's a lot, uh, very much um, dictated by education, the education model and systems and the things that they have put into place that they say, children should be doing this by this. And so we have to put into the goal, you know, they have to learn these things. Um, and so you kind of get this echo chamber of, of, several, of, I think two fields that are really informing each other. But you know, a lot of times, you know, I'll work with a kid and I'll notice that like they love letters and they are just drawn to it. And I'll start writing on things um, in simple words and I'll make um, like uh, like di- um, dioramas and I'll use pieces of paper with different words to probe different things. For instance, I had a fire truck and a shoebox that was uh, the garage that was on fire, okay? So I put a piece of paper and drew fire just on regular with a crayon, nothing special. And wrote the word fire on it then i had another one that looked like it had was um water coming out of a hose and i wrote the word water little boy loved fire trucks okay but he was just wanted to play with it in a certain way but i knew he loved letters i wasn't trying to get this child to read okay but he was drawn to letters and they were reinforcing So I started to have it where I would flip over a piece of paper, they'd have the letters that would go with the word, I would explain the word, the actions, then he started doing the play more. Okay, well come to find out, I found out from the mom, I haven't seen this child in a couple months, he's reading, Um, you know, and he loved that. And I'm not saying that I created him to read, but you know, if you hold on to certain principles, like, you shouldn't use letters to use as a reinforcement, right? something motivating, why would you do it this way? I don't understand, no one does this way. I think, that, I think that people need to honestly play with the way that they teach. They need to pull away from models um, and maybe take principles that they're using, but find ways that they can use it because our children have strengths and weaknesses. And that is okay, every child does. It doesn't matter if they are neurodivergent um, or if they are neurotypical. They are always, at some point, even the most brilliant child is gonna get to a class and they're gonna find out they have to study. (laughs) It may not be until they're in a PhD program, but at some point they're going to. So I think one of the things I'd love to see is for people to kind of look at the children that we're working with and reevaluate how you were evaluating them.
1: Thanks, Julie. Um, on the chat on Facebook Live, there was a little bit of a discussion about how society in general doesn't value children. (laughs) Um, And I put in, I just have to make sure people are aware that we did a podcast episode recently, I'll link it, but with um, Hillary Laney and Michael Brandy, on rye parenting. And it's like the best thing I've found in my life. Um, it's like where I was going with parenting, but it's just all spelled out for you. And if you're not familiar with it, you really need to check it out. Even if you're not a parent lo- lo- looking at how they describe how to see children and engage with them is exactly what we should be doing with everyone on the world, <laughs> but especially our clients. Cause it's about observing and learning and valuing each person as a human. Um, as opposed to like some little puppet, you can just move around and do things with. So, um, Sarah, there was one other thing I was going to say when you were bringing up trauma and, um, and then I'll promise I'll stop talking, but I did a presentation recently and I found some quotes, um, that were said by autistics. Cause you were talking about, you know, how the autistic experience itself can be traumatic. And these two quotes just really, um, hit home for me being neurotypical, If you're, if anyone's wondering um, kind of how to connect with the autistic experience. So the first is from Matthew Dix and it's from his book, memoirs of an imaginary friend. And he says, you have to be the bravest person in the world to go out every day, being yourself when no one likes who you are. It's like, if you could just imagine living an experience like that, when like, that's what your lived experience is to go out into the world every day, knowing that people don't like you as you are. And to think about that, like often in the work that we're doing, we are sending that message that like people will not like you the way you are. And so you need to act like this instead. The other quote is from Paul Collins and it says autists are the ultimate square pegs. And the problem with pounding a square peg into a round hole is not that the hammering is hard work. It's that you're destroying the peg. So that's another one I just wanted to share for us to think about, um, especially when we're, if people are trying to say like, oh, trauma-informed care is not, it's only if there's like known trauma, like clearly from, if you read the works of many autistics and the experiences they're having, and it's not even just their own unique sensory experiences, but the way the world treats them and perceives their existence to be wrong um, and that it needs to be fixed and, you know, pound that square peg into a round hole, break the peg, right? Um, So I just wanted to share that.
2: I So as a trauma professional, my biggest pet peeve is, but they don't have trauma. I'm like, no, all the way back, you need to assume everyone has trauma and act from that place because so many people have trauma that you are not meeting anyone's needs if you're not doing that. Um, And I wanted to go back just real quick to the horse thing. Please don't break horses either. I train wild mustangs and the horse training world is like everything that you think is wrong with humans is in the horse training world. Horses are animals and the things we do to horses and I mean all animals really, right? Like realistically stop being awful to other things that exist in the world and do the things with care and love and compassion instead right like I have a wild mustang who basically only likes me I can make him move all of his body parts with my eyes I've never once raised my voice yelled at him or smacked him and so I think that's you know also important but they do still break
1: horses very broken so yeah yes. thank you for clarifying that and I think Sarah mentioned in the Facebook chat too like even also rats right like no No, no being deserves to be treated in the way that we're talking about. Um, Okay. I know we're, we're closing in on like a half an hour over (laughs) before um, we close out, just to check in. um, Was there anyone else from the collective? I don't know why I'm I'm still stuck on Facebook live, so I can't see you. Is there anyone else from the collective that wants to share any thoughts or reflections?
5: Hey, Megan, real quick. I know we're so over, so I hate to talk,
1: but every everyone (laughs) you're on the Facebook live too
5: (laughs) can you hear me um I was just gonna say like everyone was so inspiring but I think you've all inspired me in my own practice day-to-day I'm having so many more of the difficult conversations in my own head like really analyzing every piece I do that it's just making me so much better like oh wait did I like I used to do this without thinking, but now I'm pausing. So if I'm doing it, I'm being so much more mindful of like every moment. And in a way I need to get out of my head a little bit because it's making, but I think just making sure that we like have those difficult conversations with ourselves because we can have those on the daily basis so that when we need to have it in the field we're that much more comfortable and like learning to show ourselves compassion as we grow. So thank you guys so much. I always learn so much.
1: Thank you, Beth. Anybody else? I'll take one more if anyone else wants to share. All right. I don't see anyone like raising their hand or anything. So thanks for those of you who are able to hang out longer and to the panelists for hanging out longer as well. Um, generally, Samantha or Sarah, were there any other thoughts from like the little discussion we just had? Because I kind of just sort of cut that to see if there were any other Reflection. Yeah,
3: just everybody yeah. learn. Everybody who works with disabled people needs to um, know what ableism is and know how to be anti ableist. Just
4: putting that out there. And anyone that works with little humans, big humans, it doesn't matter. We all need to, to know the trauma informed care. So seek that out if you don't have that experience. Um, it, it'll help you just be a better human
1: in general.
2: Yep, those.
1: All right. Thank you, Samantha. Um, For those of you who are part of the collective, um, just a reminder that on Saturday, we have our webinar with Amelia Bowler on oppositional defiant disorder. And that's from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. But that also be recorded in case you can't attend live. And that's for influencers and trailblazers. So that's our last February event. Um, And for those of you who are on Clubhouse and want to learn more about Compassionate parenting or rye parenting myself and joe are hosting a room on clubhouse on saturday at 1 p.m eastern with um hillary laney and michael brandy to talk about compassionate parenting if you're not on clubhouse i have a few invites and i can start a little chain but you have to have an iphone so um let me know in the chat on the facebook live because that'll be the easiest way to start the chain if you're interested in joining clubhouse to learn more about that. So thanks everyone for participating. I hope that this was helpful. And um, for those of you that are on the collective, definitely feel free to continue the conversation there if there's any other questions or reflections you want to share. Bye everyone. Bye
5: y'all.